Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden, of course. I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and it is the middle of September. If you joined us last week after listening to the recording, I think I misspoke and said it was November. No, it's not. It's September. (laughs) We're not that far ahead yet, but apparently my brain is, so I hope hope I can apologize for getting the month wrong. But here we are in the middle of September. September, did I say that right? Yes. And... Today's program, we're going to talk about some things you might be seeing in your landscape now, some things you might might see the next few weeks, and we're going to talk about some things you can be doing, maybe should be doing to certain areas around your garden and landscape. And we did this last month in August. I thought it would be helpful to maybe do that going forward about the middle of the month to say, hey, This is a good time to be looking for this, scouting out for this problem or that problem, uh, and going around the landscape looking at shrubs, looking at your perennials, looking at your annual beds. Today we're going to talk about roses a bit, and trees, uh, all kinds of things, because the garden still needs your attention. Things are starting to, uh, you know, the time, uh, sun is changing, time will be changing when we flip that uh, clock, and what do we do, fall backwards, I guess? And so, less light. Uh, we've already had the pinnacle of our light at the summer solstice. And so, things are changing. And your plants will be looking different. They will be acting different, perhaps. And they're starting to go, instead of putting out a ton of growth like they did in the spring, they may be putting out a little bit of growth. But, of course, many of your plants, the deciduous things like trees, uh, some of your trees, oaks and maples, uh, shrubs, like hydrangeas, they're going to start losing their leaves eventually, probably next month when we do get into October. But for now, we still have time to grow a bit and prepare our plants to get ready for their long winter's nap. Even though your evergreen plants like arborvitae, and maybe if you have some kind of cypress, Leland cypress, which if you do have Leland cypress, maybe consider getting rid of it this fall. Because, of course, you know, we talk about how it breaks. It's quite brittle. The branches uh, are so high-angled that they, uh, in an ice storm, which we do usually get, we don't get a lot of snow here in the south, but during an ice storm, you might find that they break, and they are prone to diseases. But these evergreen plants, they too will be going to sleep, even though they'll be maintaining most of their leaves. Uh, They do drop leaves in the fall from the interior of the plant, so be on the lookout for that. And even some of our native, uh, well, I should say the native conifer of the south, our pine trees, 
Our pine trees do that too. They start dropping their needles, but they only should be dropping them from the center. So with your evergreen plants, as you are watching them change throughout this upcoming fall, if you notice an evergreen plant completely going brown, completely losing its leaves or needles, unless it's a bald cypress, uh, which is a deciduous conifer, or maybe the metasequoia, the dawn redwood, they do drop all their leaves. But if you notice the ones that should be evergreen dropping all of their leaves and needles, that could be reason for concern. But don't be concerned if they drop some of their needles from the interior of the plant. But today, like I said, we're going to be walking around your landscape, looking at different things, looking for maybe some problems in certain areas, and giving you some ideas on things you could be doing now and maybe should be doing now. I want to jump right into our roses. We haven't talked about roses in a while. Uh, I think in the past we've sort of dedicated an entire program to roses. And if you are interested in growing roses, then be sure to check out some of those programs online at NewSouthernGarden.com. You can listen to them on demand whenever and however you'd like. You can listen to them on your computer, but you can also find a New Southern Garden on your podcasting apps on your smart devices like your phones and tablets. But roses are a, uh, I, I tend to call them the uh, America's favorite plant, America's favorite flower, because we've been growing roses for a long time. Of course, they are quite diverse in the range of areas they can grow. They're, they're quite cold hardy, uh, even though I'll say that some of my roses did not make it. They were young. They were young, so that could be part of it, but they did not make it through that very severe winter we had uh, last winter down to a single digits, you know. We don't usually see that, so it's not, usually winter's not a concern for roses, but they can add so much to your landscape and garden, depending on the kind of rose you're growing. Uh, of course, you can, you can have flowers throughout the entire growing season, from spring all the way to our first frost, which is, you know, coming up in a few weeks. So with that being said, there are some roses that, that only bloom on old wood, kind of like some of our hydrangeas do. And with those roses, of course, we don't want to be pruning them maybe too late in the season or too early, if you look at it that way. We want to let them bloom out and then trim them back. You, you might get by with some of these roses that bloom on old wood by trimming now, sooner than later, and fertilizing, trying to encourage some new growth. Because if you start pruning those old wood blooming roses uh, after fall gets here, you will be removing branches and stems that have already set the flower buds. They're just not developed yet. But with our modern roses, we are usually seeing roses that bloom on new wood, which means that we can prune them anytime we like, but the best time would be uh, late winter or very early spring. So don't get out there right now and just whack roses back. If you have an unshapely plant that you want to sort of trim up and uh, get back into shape, you could do some light pruning now. Um, but, but really, after we get through Labor Day, which that was two weeks ago, I can't believe it. But after we get through Labor Day, we don't want to do any major pruning on our roses. Now, a lot of times people see roses as a, a formal plant, and it doesn't have to be that way. What I'm saying when I mean formal is that we see roses a lot of times grown in formal beds 
with parterres even. Of course, parterre, remember, is a uh, horticultural device where we use uh, straight edges and create geometric patterns. They could be square. They could be circles. You go to some of the older houses around the south, and you may see some of these parterres and roses growing amongst them. So it seems like just because folks of a different time period used roses quite formally in the landscape, big big blocks of them and geometric patterns and whatnot. We don't have to do that. They can blend in very well with a quite naturalistic planting, a more informal planting, and they should. And one way to encourage that look and style is to plant other things with roses. Instead of just having a big block of roses, uh, switch it up and add some things in between. As a matter of fact, one of the most... Uh, beautiful combinations that roses make is with clematis. You know, clematis is a vine. There are plenty of different colors and plenty of different styles and sizes even. But clematis being a vine needs something to grow on. And the a well-branched rose bush could be a great trellis for your roses. And in the periods, if you uh, pick your varieties right, but in the periods where the rose may not be blooming as well, A clematis growing up and into and through your rose plant can look really outstanding and, of course, add another layer of color, maybe another layer of texture even. Um, The great thing about growing roses and clematis together is that you can fertilize them at the same rate because they're both very heavy feeders, and so they both will appreciate extra fertilizer. But the idea would be to plant a clematis maybe two feet away from the base of the rose, and then try to lead those stems, those those vining stems toward the rose. You could use some thin string or maybe some very thin bamboo canes. Uh, I like to just use a cheap cotton twine or maybe jute twine, uh, and you can, for that season, you can attach a, the twine to the rose and allow the vines of the clematis crawl up the twine and into the rose bush. Now, one way I like to do this, and I do it a lot when I have some maybe annual vine even, or a vine that's going to die back like clematis, is I will take the twine and attach it to a a rigid support. In this case, it's the rose bush. But then on the other end of the string, I'll wrap it several times around a large, heavy rock. Uh, When I say large, maybe the size of a softball or uh, smaller than a cantaloupe. You know, it's just something heavy. Wrap it around there. And then I can move that support, that, that twine, right up near the base of whatever plant I'm trying to get to attach to, 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 to twine around and wrap around. And so that's a very easy way that you can uh, double the impact of a rose plant or a rose border. Uh, That's for sure. Some other plants that work well with roses is oregano. It's a very low ground cover. And, you know, oregano is a culinary plant. You can bring it inside. We treat it as an herb and use it in the kitchen. Uh, But it's a nice evergreen plant uh, as far as the ornamental value of oregano goes. And there is some new oreganos that are very much oregano. They smell great. They could be used culinary, but their foliage is a different color. It's not just a dark green. There's some very lime green chartreuse uh, ornamental oregano, which again, I've crushed them up, smelled them, tasted them. It's oregano, but it's a beautiful plant and being bright yellow, chartreuse, limey green, that contrasts well with really any color rose that you might uh, be growing. And then, of course, rosemary and thyme, those are two other great herbs that partner very well. The rosemary is a nice evergreen plant for the most part here in Georgia uh, and, and most of the southeast. 
Even though probably zone six will have a tough time, it might get a little too cold. Usually in seven, you're okay. And then if we have a very terrible cold winter, the rosemary may not make it. But they're relatively cheap. They grow quickly. And they can add texture with their tiny, thin leaves. And, of course, a profusion of blooms that are highly attractive to pollinators. A nice purpley lavender color blossom. And thyme, uh, especially with the creeping times, uh, those are quite ornamental. They're just a great ground cover to go underneath or in front of roses. And many of the creeping times, they're going to be blooming. They're going to have some nice pink flowers. Uh, there's like a pink chintz. Yeah, pink chintz time. That's a really great addition. And we talked about geraniums a few weeks ago, the hardy geraniums. We're not talking about the potted geraniums. Those are actually pelargoniums. But the geranium that is hardy, there's one called a Roxanne, Roseanne, Roxanne. I can never remember. Roseanne. Anyhow, she's got a great blue, nearly ultraviolet looking color that is just a great uh, chunky ground cover. They'll get at least 12 inches tall, maybe 18, but they can skirt underneath and beside of your roses as well. So roses are a great idea for your landscape. We'll be getting into planting season soon. Uh, if you can water, you can plant any time of the year, but of course it's still a bit, it's been cool the past few days, but it will be hot. And so we've got to keep our eye on the weather for that. But you don't have to. I just wanted to bring up the idea of roses today because you don't have to have roses in formal beds. I actually mix roses with grasses and other flowering perennials like we've talked about, and it can make a great addition. Now, roses, and I mentioned this to you in the past, but roses, they're not the best pollinators. Some of them are attractive to pollinators, but the roses that you and I usually prefer have very big, blousy, double super packed full of petal blossoms and bees and butterflies don't really like that because with all the extra petals that are there it's hard for them to get at what they want which is the center of the flower where all the pollen and the nectar is and so if you're looking to attract pollinators look for roses that are single roses single petals uh, there's one an old rose called apple blossom that I do see a number of pollinators creeping at at the nursery. And apple blossom is sort of a climber, a uh, rambler maybe, but it has, it looks like an apple blossom. It's got a great name because it has its ring of petals and just one set, and you can see the centers. They're smaller petals, smaller flowers, not big showy rows, but they are very attractive and a nice uh, rich pink that turns into a pale pink. So you get a variety of pinks when they're in full bloom. Um, so with that in mind, roses are a good addition to your landscape, and it doesn't have to be in formal beds. Actually, if you have a nice dense rose, you could use that rose. You could use roses as privacy hedges, sort of psychological. You will be able to see through them, but they will be giving you a ton of beautiful flowers. When we get back, folks, we'll talk more about what you should be doing now and looking for uh, this month, the month of September. Hang on tight. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at newsoutherngarden.com. 
where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the new Southern Garden family and let's grow well. So gang, today on New Southern Garden, it's the middle of the month and it's about time for us to examine our landscape, look around, see what's happening now, also see what we should be expecting maybe for the rest of the month and think of some things that we should be doing, could be doing in the landscape. Uh, And one of those things, of course, is taking a soil sample, taking a soil test, having your soil test. If you haven't had your soil tested in a certain planting area or maybe you are opening a new planting area, but if you haven't tested an area that you plan to plant in within two years, it's probably time to double check. Now, a soil test, of course, that's overseen by the uh, University of Georgia. They do the soil sampling and testing. Well, you do the sampling and then they test it. <laughs> but uh, you, your direct contact to the university's soil lab is your county agent's office or your cooperative extension office. Of course, that is an extension of UGA. They are here in each county or at least a general area to give information to the public, to farmers, to growers, to gardeners, to homeowners, uh, all of these folks, give them information so that they can grow better and grow well. And one of the things, the services they provide, of course, is the soil sampling. Just a, a very small amount. I think the last time I had one done in the spring uh, was $8 or so. $8 for a test, which you can't really beat that because it gives you so much information. Some of the information you'll get is you'll, give a recommend, you'll get a recommendation on how much nitrogen your crop might need. Uh, it will tell you how much phosphorus and potassium is in the soil and then tell you if you need to add any more. And then, of course, if there's some micronutrients, they do test for certain micronutrients and they will let you know if you need some for certain crops. Uh, A good story I have with that is I had a customer at the nursery, of course, Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. The customer wanted to grow a clover lawn, a clover lawn. And we had the soil tested and it said you need boron. And I said, why do we need boron? What is so important about that? Well, apparently boron helps, uh, the presence of boron helps big time with the germination of clover seed so had we not had the soil tested in that situation that clover seed may not have germinated well if at all and i do get a report on that about every year and that clover lawn is looking great so a lot of that is due to the soil test uh having a good head start One of the most important things a soil test will give you is also the pH of your soil. Now, the pH, of course, is that measure of acidity or alkalinity, how sweet or how uh, acidic your soil is. Now, in the south, uh, on the Piedmont at least, where we have very old soils, our old soils do tend to be quite acidic, which is okay, but we don't want them to be too acidic. Most plants, particularly the ones we grow here, most plants do prefer just slightly acidic soil, somewhere at 5.5, 6.5. 6 to 6.5 is the range for uh, a lot of plants. But uh, of course, things like blueberries, they can handle quite acidic soil and in many cases really need it because they they are native to our area, they're native to the southeast, and they're used to, they've evolved, they've adapted, whatever, with our acidic soil. So depending on what you're growing, be sure to tell UGA what you're growing. Tell your extension office and on their uh, soil sample 
bag that you will ship it off in, that bag has a spot to write in the crop. So be as specific as you can. If you're growing hardy perennials, write in hardy perennials. If you're growing uh, just one kind of perennial, say you're going to grow a, a ton of achillea or yarrow, write that on there. If you're growing annuals, but you can be more specific. I'm growing zinnias or whatnot. Well, you're not going to be growing zinnias this time of year. Uh, but whatever you're growing, if it's a certain tree or certain shrub, if it's an azalea, if it's a hydrangea, let them know and you'll get as, as accurate of a report as possible. So take this time, especially, especially if you're going to plant some this fall, take this time to test that soil and add to the soil what you need to add to give those young plants a good head start. Now, another thing that we may want to be doing this time of year is looking at our shrub border, looking at our shrubs. What kind of shrubs do you have? Maybe take an assessment of the shrubs you have. Maybe take make a list of shrubs you don't have, but you do want. And then also, uh, I'm going to give you a list here of some, some shrubs with great fall color or fruits. Now, we've done this before around this time of year, but I thought it would be a good time as you're making a list in your landscape of shrubs you do have and shrubs you don't have and shrubs you want. Uh, I thought I would give you a list of shrubs that you could put on these lists to uh, get in the ground this fall, and then every fall you will have a great fall uh demonstration, a great fall display. One of my favorite fall colored plants is the bottle brush buckeye. Bottle brush buckeye uh, seems to be deer resistant as well. It's on a deer resistant list. I haven't heard a lot of people, which I know a lot of people don't have bottle brush buckeye, but it's a great native plant. In the summer, it has these tall, very narrow cone-like flowers. Looks like a bottle brush. They're white, sometimes sort of creamy, uh, but they're highly attractive to pollinators. You don't really see them blooming in the nursery because you're not shopping for plants in the summer usually, so you've got to be asking for a green plant in the spring or this fall because the flowers have already faded, but they have huge hand-like leaves, palm-like leaves. And those palm-like leaves, after they're done blooming, we get into fall, those palm-like leaves are going to turn a very beautiful yellow gold, really attractive for your fall border. Now, you probably know beautyberry. The American beauty is beautyberry is another great native plant, which does have decent yellow fall color, but right now the beauty berries are setting their fruits and they are this vivid purple. Large clusters just wrapping around the stem at the nodes and they are looking great and beautiful. So here we are, middle of September. They're just really starting to turn color, so we'll probably enjoy those sometime into October. But because these berries are so bright and, and beautiful, they're highly attractive as a food source. Beauty berry is a good food source for birds. So if you're looking to do some birding and uh, feed wildlife, think about the shrub um, beauty berry. Now, of course, another plant that we really like for its fall color in particular is Father Gilla. There's one called Mount Airy, which is a reasonable size, maybe five foot tall, maybe up to eight. I really don't see them get that big. But the Father Gilla is another native plant with awesome fall color. Not just yellow, not just red, not just orange, but a mixture and even a touch of purple or maroon. Uh, you have on every leaf, just like a painting, 
of these fall colors on the Father Gila, and they're quite dependable. Uh, they will do it every year, and they look outstanding. But there's a bonus. In the spring, you get these short bottle brush-like flowers right on the tip before the leaves even unfurl. So a naked plant in the spring, no leaves, but has these beautiful white bottle brush flowers on the top. It's a great plant, really, to uh, grow in your native shrub border or just any any shrub border. Um of course, we talked last week about oak leaf hydrangea, that kind of blood red. We talked about its bark last week, but we really should reemphasize the importance of its red, bloody fall color. <laughs> really attractive. And then, of course, uh, things like crepe myrtle. Talked about it last week. You know it, but it's a bigger tree. Well, small tree, but not a shrub. Uh, and it's going to have just a profusion of reds and oranges and yellows. Got to have that. And many of the viburnums. Many of the, the viburnums have great fall color. Of course, they're early spring bloomers. And then they just sort of hang out in the landscape, um, not doing much, but being beautiful and green, right? And then when fall hits, they restore that beauty they had in spring, but this time it's their their foliage. Uh, different varieties of colors, depending on what viburnum you're looking at. Uh, the double file viburnum it grows great in the south. It's not a native, but uh, it does do fine here in the south. It loves our climate. And their leaves get very dark red, kind of like the, um, the oak leaf hydrangea. So these are just a few shrubs that are going to have some great fall color. Of course, the list goes on and on. Um, oh, I can't leave this off. We were talking about berries too. Don't forget about winter berry holly. Winter berry holly is a great native plant, has decent fall color, but it's really those bright red, large pearl. They look like pearls, the size of large pearls, uh, but they are a bright red and they will carry their fruits well into the winter, which is how it gets its name winterberry holly. So you have a leafless plant all winter. They do drop their leaves, but then they have this glorious, they have this glorious show glorious show of bright red berries. So this time of year, think about making a list of shrubs you need to add in the fall. Really, October and November is a good time to do it, but now's a good time to make your list. And maybe you can find some of these native and non-native great fall color plants to that list. Add them to that list. When we get back from this break, more on what to be doing now. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, gang, welcome back to the second half of today's program here on New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and today we're talking about things to be doing, things to be looking for in the landscape. Oh, we've talked about roses and some of the things you can plant with roses so you can have a great display and great uh, companion planting 
with your rose plants. They don't have to be planted formally in rows. Roses don't need to be in rows. <laughs> roses don't need to be in roses. But uh, anyhow, you can plant them uh, erratically even. You can plant them with perennials and other shrubs that look great. And we talked about some shrubs, some things to be doing as far as maybe preparing to plant this fall, making a list and checking it twice. We talked about some fall um foliage and fall berry plants that may even carry over into the winter. Now I want to talk about trees. Uh, we talked about trees and what to be doing with trees last August or this past August, but now we're going to talk about what to be looking for. One of the problems with trees, with, with a number of trees I'm seeing, uh, including things like birches, maples, maybe cherries, um, crab apple if you have those, willow trees, uh, several trees. I've seen it in pecan trees is the fall webworm, the fall webworm. I think we talked about the webworm years ago, but it always concerns people. Um, it's not quite like the tent caterpillar, which we might actually see in the spring, but the fall webworm is not usually, usually noticeable until this time of year, late summer or into early fall. And what you'll see is you'll start to see their nests. They, they start appearing at the tips of the branches of these trees. And it just looks like uh, a lot of times we think it might be a spider because it's a web. But it's not a spider. It's a little caterpillar. And a lot of times you'll see, if you look up close, you'll see inside of that web, you'll see a bunch of little caterpillars, little worms. And they are consuming the foliage of these plants. And that usually concerns people, but usually the defoliation is quite minimal when you compare it to the plant at large. It's not a whole lot. It occurs late in the season, so it's not early like the uh, tent caterpillar might be. It's late in the season. The plants are going to be dropping their leaves anyways. Uh, they're going to be naturally dropping those leaves, so there's usually, usually no cause for alarm. Remember, if we're going to grow our gardens and be sort of a, a part of our surrounding nature, we'll, we may have to be feeding things that we don't necessarily um, uh, want to feed, but you have to consider the time of year. And right now, because we're in late summer, pushing into early fall, it's not such a big deal. Usually these webworms, there's no reason to go out there and just nuke the plant unless it is occurring in a young plant we do see that some damage can occur to young plants if that's allowed to persist, if the webworm is allowed to persist on small trees. But large trees, like the pecan tree we have at the nursery, it's been there for decades, it's huge. And we see the fall webworm, and I don't bat an eye. I don't really care about them because the tree is so big. There's so much other foliage. These webworms are just on the tip, and shortly, the tree will be dropping its leaves anyways. It's kind of done its thing for the summer as far as storing and growth. But if you have a bad, severe infestation that is taking up most of the plant, or if it's a young plant, they may be, um, may be caused to, uh, to destroy them. And you can destroy them if they're easily reached. You can destroy them by pruning them out. Uh, you can burn the infest infested branch once you've removed it from the tree. Um, but I don't know. I wouldn't really worry about the ones you can't reach. There's no reason. There's no reason to be, um, to be uh, you know, putting yourself in liability's way. You don't want to fall off a ladder because you're trying to get to the tip of a large tree. Don't, don't do that. It's really not worth it. It's just the fall webworm. And their timing is good because, again, 
the plant will be dropping its leaves soon anyways. But when it comes to trees, what are some things, kind of like with shrubs, I wanted to have a short list of trees you could add to your landscape that will give you some great fall color. We already talked about the crepe myrtle, which is sometimes... Um, sometimes considered a shrub, and some of the newer varieties are quite small, but they do have outstanding fall color. But of course, you know the Japanese maples, probably. The Japanese maples, they have all kinds of colors, reds, yellows, oranges, just depends on the variety of the type tree you're growing. If you're getting a tree from somebody, as I have in the past, somebody who has a Japanese maple may start to see babies around their mature Japanese maple, and they may be gifting you a Japanese maple tree. You may not know the fall color, but we have had a number of seedling-grown Japanese maples at the nursery, and they all exhibit a different shade of red, yellow, or orange. They're quite unique in that. It's, it's really an attractive thing. So I say the more Japanese maples you have, you know, the better fall color you'll have. But then, of course, there's our native red maple. We can't go through a short list of fall color trees without mentioning red maple. And there are a number of cultivars, varieties of red maples now. Of course, there's like October Glory, which is becoming a good standard. Autumn Blaze, which is another standard. Uh, it's actually a hybrid, but it's got a lot of the red maple in it. Uh, and, and then there's like Summer's Red. I really like Summer's Red because they have a great fall color, but their new growth in the summer is red. So when the new growth comes out, you've got red leaves that turn to a green as they mature. So you get two seasons of leaf color with the Summer's Red, red maple. And... I'm going to give you my favorite. I'm going to give you my favorite. My favorite small tree uh, for fall color that you need to add to your landscape is going to be the amelanchers or the service berries. The service berries. Their leaves are like the father gilla in last segment. Father gilla is just a shrub, but this uh, service berry is maybe 20, 25 foot tall in its lifetime. And every leaf on the plant is going to have reds, yellows, oranges, all mixed together. It is a outstanding plant for fall color. Its foliage during the summer is quite a blue-green, so another shade of green. But of course, in the early spring, we get an apple-like blossom on the service berry. That is, it's one of the first plants to bloom. Really, really pretty. And don't forget about the dogwoods. Even though we've talked about some issues dogwoods have in the past, the um, Florida dogwood, flowering dogwood, is going to have some red to purple leaves. If you can grow a dogwood well, then you will have some really rich tones in your fall color display. And I do like the parodia. Parodia is a great small tree that uh, has sort of generic looking leaves, but there's one called Persian Spire that we've been growing at the nursery that uh, in the summer, its leaves, when, it, when they first unfurl, they're green on the center, but the edge, it's like somebody took a purple marker and marked up the edge. Really attractive. Then, of course, when they mature, they're just green. But later in the, in the season, when fall color gets here, you will have shades of reds, yellow, and orange all kind of mixed together. It's not a native tree like the service berry, but it is a great tree if you're looking for some unusual fall color and structure. They tend to branch well and just look different in the landscape, have great architecture, if you will. 
Oh, we can't talk about fall color without talking about ginkgo, ginkgo biloba. The ginkgo tree is a strange tree because we didn't really know it existed except as fossils. But then they found a patch of them in China where they're from. And the, the plant hunters collected seed. And so every, every ginkgo you see is a product of that little patch of ginkgos that was discovered uh, in China really within the past decade, not that long ago. And they do have that fan-shaped leaf with sort of a cleft right in the middle of it. Really unusual. It's a dinosaur tree, that's for sure. It's a tree that apparently grew with the dinosaurs. But uh, the fog color cannot be matched when it comes to gold yellow. If you need something gold and yellow, go with a ginkgo. But remember, ginkgo is a big tree. They're slow growers, so they won't get big fast. But once they get growing, uh, after a couple of decades, they'll, they'll be quite large. They can be 40 feet and maybe 60 feet. If, uh, I don't know if I planted one, if I would live long enough to see it get 60 feet. They're just a noble tree. They last forever. They really don't have any disease issues that we know of. But when it comes to ginkgo, you have to remember that they are a dioecious plant. Now, what does dioecious mean? Well, dioecious means that um, there is a plant that has male flowers, and there's a plant that has female flowers. Now, if you are growing a female flowering, or not, they don't flower, they actually produce a cone, but botanically. But if you're growing a female plant, you will expect to have, if there's a male in the area, you will expect to have these cones drop in the late summer, uh, and they, they're, they don't look like cones, they look like a berry, uh, but they do smell really bad. They really smell bad. You probably know this if you're familiar with ginkgo. So look for a cultivar that has been propagated asexually, not one that is grown from seed, because you won't really be able to tell the difference between a male and female plant until it starts putting out its cones. And then it's too late because it's a big tree. You have to cut it down or deal with those stinky, smelly things that drop to the ground. Uh, that's always something to be advised of when you're looking at the ginkgo family group. So these are, oh, let me talk about uh, Nyssa, sourwood. Th this is another great plant that is um, sort of a uh, uh, naturalistic looking plant. It, it's not quite formal, even though some of the cultivars do give you a great uh, sort of traditional shaped tree. If you see them in the woods, you probably wouldn't be impressed. But if they're grown in the sun and grown in the landscape, they are quite impressive. You probably know this again. Uh, it is a plant that is going to have beautiful fall color, reds, yellows, and oranges all mixed in. It's amazing the number of native plants the number of native plants that uh, we grow in our landscapes that are just gorgeous and have fall color. I don't know. I mean, I haven't traveled the world. I've been to Venezuela, been to Hawaii. Uh, haven't really been to Europe and Asia. But uh, I don't know if I don't know if there's any elsewhere that has the beautiful, beautiful fall colors that our native plants do. So those are some lists of trees that you should maybe look into. If you're looking to create a new bed, create a bit of shade. Some of these trees will give you light shade, and some of them are much larger, like the ginkgo. They'll give you some dense shade. Uh, so be sure to be on the lookout for those this fall season as you start planting your landscapes. Now, what about some other things we need to be doing with trees? Um, be sure to remove any dead or diseased branches. Um, because any time you see dead or diseased wood, it needs to be removed. The best time of year to really uh, prune anything 
is when it's actively growing. All right, now this goes against what maybe we've said for 150 years, but what modern horticultural research shows is that when we cut a tree, when we prune a branch, we are creating a wound. And we need that wound to heal as soon as possible. Just like you and I, if we get a cut on our hand, we go clean it, we go put Neosporin on it, put a Band-Aid on it. We want it to heal as soon as possible. We don't want it to be open and uh, exposed for too long. I mean, that's why we cover it with a Band-Aid. But the idea is if we heal our plants, if our plants heal quickly, then they will reduce the amount of potential disease problems that may come around from having an exposed wound. So fall is not really a good time to prune. Uh, The last day I usually tell people to prune is Labor Day. Same time with fertilizing. But in, in this case, what we need to consider is that if it's diseased or dead, it needs to go as soon as you catch it. Because anything dead could start rotting, which means rot can travel down that branch, get into the stem. Uh, If it starts to uh, be diseased, then the disease may get worse. So it's best, even though we're chancing cutting a wound when the plant cannot heal it, we'd rather get rid of dead or diseased material. So look for that on your trees and look for that on your shrubs. Anything dead or diseased needs to go. And now's a good time to take an assessment of your plants and see if there's anything that needs to be pruned back. Well, gang, when we get back from this break, we've just got a few minutes left of the show, but we will talk more about what we need to be looking for and doing now, right now, in our landscape. Hang on tight. Hey, gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the new Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. (laughs) At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. So gang, here we are in the middle of September, and there are some things we need to be doing, thinking about doing. We've been talking about all those things today. We've been making a lot of lists for planting things in the fall. Uh, You can go ahead and plant things now. I mean, if it's a containerized plant, uh, you'll be getting 100% of the root system. Transplanting or using moving plants is not ideal until maybe they've dropped their leaves. You don't want to be moving plants here in the later part of summer and them uh, suffer because it may be dry, it may be too hot still. Uh, Anytime we have leaves on plants, it's not an ideal time to transplant them. But if the plant has gone dormant, uh, that'll be later in the year. You can do so. But if you're buying a new plant that's in a pot, you're getting the entire root system. You're not damaging the roots. And so that plant can easily start taking root as long as you can make sure it has supplemental water if it needs it, if it kind of gets dry. Uh, We've been talking about trees. We've been talking about shrubs, what to do with these things, and which ones maybe to add to a list because a lot of these plants have great fall color. 
We talked about roses as well and what we can be doing to make roses stand out in our landscape. But now I want to talk about perennials and particularly something we do with perennials or rather something we should do with perennials that maybe we don't do often enough. Remember, perennial plants are those plants that come back year after year. Now, technically, trees and shrubs that are hardy to our zone are perennial. They do come back year after year. They don't just die over winter. But as opposed to annuals, which we'll be planting soon, like pansies and violas, they last for a season. It gets too hot in the summer, and then they die. But perennials are plants that, even though they may die back, they may lose their leaves and stems, their root is very much alive. And that root will spring forth with new growth, new blooms, new leaves, new everything in the spring. So these are plants that are essential to a landscape, especially if you don't want to have to replant everything every year. So we do want to make sure we have a number of perennials in our landscape. Of course, we've talked about perennials and all different kinds over the past several years, and you can find those shows online at NewSouthernGarden.com. Just search for perennials, and you'll be in good shape. Now, with perennials, uh, we sort of have a higher expectation for them than maybe we should. Uh, Yes, they come back year after year, but they don't live forever. But there is one thing we can do to encourage them to live longer than uh, maybe they would if left untouched, and that is to divide them. Divide them regularly. Maybe every two or three years, certain perennials benefit from being divided, being dug out and then chopped into pieces and replanted. Not only does that reinvigorate the plant, it sort of brings uh, juvenility to a large clump or a large uh, mass of a plant, but it also encourages the gardener because now you've got a bunch of baby plants that you can spread around your landscape and put into other areas. So dividing plants is really critical and it can be done Dividing of perennials can be done in the spring, the early part of spring, before they really put out a ton of leaves, and then they can be divided again in the fall, and we're really getting to that point where we can start to do that. Once the temperatures cool off a bit, and I say reliably, sort of had a cool spell here, but just keep listening to WRWH for weather updates, but as the temperatures cool off a bit, it's a good time to divide perennials and transplant them. Again, you can put them in new areas or replant them where you dug them out at. Uh, Some of the perennials that really benefit from this kind of division are things like Achillea or Yarrow. I sort of mentioned it earlier. They do create a large number of of plants, even in one large clump. Uh, So you can dig them out and cut them into pieces and replant them, put some in pots or give some away to friends uh, or spread them in other areas. But then the Amsonia, which is the blue star, I think we mentioned it last last month, but the blue star uh, is a great plant that is going to um, have a number of buds right at the base of the root system. So it's really easy to divide those up as well. Uh, Shastas, Shasta daisies. We talked in the spring about, or maybe it was early summer, but we talked about Shasta daisies and they're a wonderful bloomer in the summer, but they benefit maybe every two or three years from being divided. Baptisia or the false indigo, another one on the list. Some of the Coreopsis need to be divided every now and then. Epimediums, this is a great ground cover in the shade 
shade. They bloom early in the year, and they have these sort of heart-shaped leaves uh, that are deciduous. They they die. Uh, the, they don't die. They die back in the in the fall, but they can be divided and probably should be a key. A key to look for, and you might be seeing it right now with some of your older perennials, is if you have a dead center, if a plant is sort of dying back in the middle, and you have a ring of growth around a dead center, that's a key indicator that it's time to um, to divide that plant. What's going on is the younger part of the plant, which was in the middle, right, where you planted it, the, younger, the older part of the plant, rather, is in the middle, and the older part of the plant is dying back. Just like with trees and shrubs, the older leaves die back. So you've got a dead center and a ring of newer, more juvenile growth around that older part of the plant. And those areas along that ring can be divided out and chunked out and planted around the landscape. So sort of a process for that would be to, what I like to do is lift the entire plant out of the ground. That way you can work with it a little more. You don't necessarily have to lift the whole plant out of the ground, but it sure is a lot easier to, to make, uh, to make easy to make easy cuts and if you have a sharp spade you can use a sharp spade once you've lifted the root ball out of the ground you can maybe quarter the plant take a uh, sharp spade cut it in one direction and then turn that uh, 180 degrees and cut it again and that would give you four plants but if the clump is large enough you might be able to with a spade or maybe with a sharp sharp scissor or perhaps a serrated blade serrated knife Divide those clumps even more. Divide them even more, and that will give you a large number of plants. Now that you have these divisions, it's important to put them back in the landscape or put them in a container with some potting mix. Um, the idea would be while you've got your plants lifted, you can rework that bed, add in two inches of organic matter, and stir that in turn that in and you may use a, a, a rototiller. You may use some kind of tiller to mix all this up. Perennials benefit from adding organic matter and mixing it up into the, into the soil as much as you can. So once you've prepared the bed, then it's time to take those divisions and put them back into the landscape, into the planting bed. Now be sure that you don't bury the stem of the plant, but just bury right at the top of the soil line. So in other words, where the top of the roots are, that can be right at the top of the soil line. You don't have to go very deep at all. As a matter of fact, if you plant plants too deep, uh, soil that is around the stem will encourage rot and decay. And then, of course, you want to remulch that area with two inches of some kind of organic mulch like wooded, wood chips, shredded wood chips, uh, maybe pine straw, something like that, and then water them in. Once you've planted something, it's a good idea to water it in well because the water will help to settle soil around the root system and push out, push out any air pockets that may be touching roots. Remember, Roots that touch air are going to dry out, but roots that touch soil, a well-amended soil, it's really going to, uh, to help things out and encourage root growth. So gang, today on New Southern Garden, we have talked about getting... Uh, things done in the landscape in September. I hope this has been helpful to you. If you have questions, check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com. We'll have our Q&A week very soon, and we'll be excited to answer your specific questions. But for WRWH and New Southern Garden, my name is Nathan Wilson, and I hope you stay well and grow well. We'll see you next week.
Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show.